Hi everyone, I am Johnny Morgan and you are listening to Tell Craig Your Story podcast. everyone, Craig here. Welcome to another edition of the podcast, Tell Craig Your Story. Today we'll be speaking to Johnny Morgan. Now Johnny was born in Sussex, England. He spent some time in Wales and Scotland, but is now residing in Shanghai, China. Now Johnny has opened up his new business called Oxford English. Now Johnny is helping students from all over China prepare for their exams, preparing for university and also preparing them for moving to England in the future. Now, Johnny's social media in China have become very, very popular. He currently has 85,000 followers. Now, me and Johnny met through work, and he was the academic coordinator, but also during this time, he was studying for his master's at Oxford University, and he graduated at the end of last year. Now we also talk about his rugby union schoolboy career, but we also talk about his passion for education and for helping people. Today's sponsor for the podcast is Will's Tailor Shop. Now Mr. Zhao created Will's Tailor Shop with the goal of it becoming an unrivaled high-end tailor-made brand. The brand adheres to the artisan spirit and stitches each piece with excellence. A selection of exclusive fabrics created from the world's rarest fibers to meet the high-end occasions in all fields. Will's Tailor Shop owns six stores with the footprint in Shanghai, Suzhou, and Tajin. The flag shop is located on Hunan Road, Shihui District in Shanghai. And best to speak to Janet. And if you mention Tell Craig Your Story podcast, you'll get a special discount off your first suit. But before we go, please go to our website. We're at Podbean. Tell Craig Your Story at Podbean.com. We have a link tree which tells you where Tell Craig Your Story podcast is streaming. We're on all the major streaming services. Google Podcast, Apple iTunes, Spotify. We're on all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to request someone to come onto the podcast, please send through me an email. We also have VK for our Russian listeners and WeChat for our Chinese listeners. At Tell Craig Your Story. All right, here we go. This is my chat with Johnny Morgan on Tell Craig Your Story podcast. Hi, Johnny. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Craig. Thank you. Uh, how are you? I'm doing very, very good. Uh, we're in the, the Johnny Castle here in uh, central Shanghai. How yes. is it now, the new place? Oh, I love my new nice. home. We moved in June, right after the lockdown finished. Lockdown finished, we got our skates on and moved. 
and it was a very good decision. Very good. It's decision. a very beautiful home. Upstairs too. I'm the, very satisfied. Yes. The outlook. Whew. Yes, we've got great beautiful. roof, great area. You know, great restaurants nearby, and lots of um, fresh air as well. Yeah. Uh, balcony and roof, which mm. means that if there is another lockdown at any point, I can cope. So the, fresh, the fresh air is the important thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's where we are. And straight up, breaking news: the monarchy has changed. Your Prime Minister has changed. Yeah, very tragic sort of news. But uh, where were you when this? When you found out all this news? Well, firstly, yeah, it is very tragic. Um, I was honestly quite upset. Even though she was 96 years old, the Queen, mm. I had a moment in my office. Um, mm. I was sitting in my office, actually, when I got a message from my father saying, whatever's happening with the Queen doesn't look good. That's what he said. And I hadn't been paying attention to the news. My VPN wasn't on. And I loaded it and I noticed, you know, all of the prime ministers and former prime ministers were sort of making official statements. And I think, um, I think it was quite predictable quite quickly what was going to happen. Mm. Um, so I was set for that. And that was two nights ago. And um, I was very really tired. Actually, I think the Queen died maybe about four o'clock in the afternoon uh, in the UK, which is 11 o'clock here, but I think I might have um, gone to sleep by the time it happened. I woke up in the morning and checked immediately. Yeah. And I saw that she'd gone, and my girlfriend was still sleeping, but mm. um, even though it was 6.30 a.m., I, I, you know, I, I felt like I had to whisper over to her, the Queen is dead. Very historic and very sad. I, I spoke to my father yesterday on the phone, and... Um, my dad is 63, and he told me she became queen uh, seven years before I was born. Yeah. So if you're looking at me for any guidance about what's going to happen or how to feel or what to do, I've got no clue. Yeah. So it's a strange feeling because it's like the queen has been just a sort of permanent feature. Like the rock, right? Yeah, permanent unifying feature throughout all our lives. Mm. And she has this kind of... She has this kind of perception where she's almost immortal, but yeah. obviously she isn't. And um, this happening in the same week as the Prime Minister changing yes. um, is, you know, a big sea change in the UK, but... Well, that was... Sorry, Johnny, that, yeah. that was the last... Apparently, that was the last uh, public appearance. Yeah, so it was well, the last public duty. Mm. I mean, I think it's very um, admirable. There's been news for several months now that the Queen had mobility issues. Yes. That's the term they used, which might be a bit euphemistic to say that she was not feeling very well at all, thank you very much. Um, uh. And I, I, nobody knows for sure, but I suspect that once Boris announced he would resign a few months ago, the Queen told herself privately, right, I'll hang on to see out my duty there, getting rid of Boris and saying thank you very much Boris and appointing the new PM, Liz Truss, because that's actually her job. Yeah. It's the monarch's job to formally appoint the PM. And then once she'd done that, said hello Liz Truss, she, uh, she hung up her boots and mm. said, right, that's my game, that's my game finished, pass the bat on. Well, I I heard, that's very admirable. Well, I heard that when all the family were all flying in, yes. you, you knew that was something. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where, you know, especially given the status of the monarch, the, the palace and the institution around them wouldn't be making those kind of announcements unless they were fairly sure that something mm. very significant was happening. So they kind of like prepare people in advance. Um, 
But also, you know, I was thinking that, you know, the UK has had a new monarch and a new prime minister all in one week and yeah. very seamless, very lots of goodwill and so on with no any kind of uprising or disturbance and I think that's a very good quality of the UK as well. We just keep plodding along, keep calm and carry on. Um, and then this morning the news has turned a bit more to King Charles. Yes. He made a speech. I think I've said it three or four times already still Prince Charles and then I gave yeah. King Charles. He's King Charles III. Yeah. I'm quite hot on kings and queens. When I was a kid, actually, when I was seven years old, I could do it much better. I used to be able to sort of name all the kings and queens of England in order with their dates. Mm. I think I'd be quite good now, but I don't think I'd get everything absolutely right. But King Charles is the third Charles. And the first Charles and the second Charles was in the 1600s. Charles I was about 1625 to 1649, and he's the only one who got executed. He got his head chopped off oh. uh, by Parliament, and started the English Civil War. And then his son, Charles II, who was about 20 years later, came back and was the first king after the Civil War. But that's the most recent Charles. Mm. And now we have to wait 350 <laughs> years to have another Charles. And there right. he is, King Chuck. Yeah. King Chad. He's also... I, I, I bit of a history buff. Mm. He's also uh, the oldest person to ever become the king. Yes, that's... Uh, that, I think he's in his mid-70s. Yeah, that could be uh, an issue as well. Oh, yeah, I think he's still got his head screwed on now. Yeah. I think the queen was uh, pretty pretty nimble in the mind right up until the last. Yes. I, I imagine, you know, if we're looking at the queen dying at 96, I imagine we're probably looking at about 20 years of King Charles. Yeah. Uh, that'd be my guess. But yeah, I mean, even to say God save the king or sing the national anthem, God save our gracious king, sounds weird. Yeah, it does, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be the World Cup this, this in a oh, couple of yeah. months and England will be singing the anthem and I bet some of those football players, they forget it. They sing God save the queen. Mm. A very historical and memorable week, I think. I think Absolutely. in the same way that we all remember where we were when 9-11 happened or something, yeah. I'll probably always remember where I was when Queen Elizabeth died. Well, they were showing all the all the greatest achievements, yeah. and they showed uh, Diana. And oh, I was yeah. like, I remember when Princess Diana remember that as passed well. away as well. And I, sort of, I was still a child, but yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, and that was 25 years ago. Yeah, Almost exactly. Almost exactly. And they said that uh, he's been married to Camilla Parker Bowl for 17 years. Yeah, I, I, I remember that. Well. Gone that, happened at the same, that happened the same time as the Pope died. Yeah. I remember, I, I, somewhere, I think it was in Germany for some reason. Mm. I remember the Pope died and they changed Pope. And Charles got married to Camilla basically mm. on the same day or the same week. Yeah. And I remember thinking that was pretty historical as well. But it's so, like the, they're just so reliable. The, well, they're a very the, permanent feature. Yeah. I was chatting with some people, I was chatting with some Americans yesterday, and, you know, America's a great place. But, you know, America's been quite divisive recently, you know, mm. Trump and some of these uh, progressives and so on. It's relatively divisive in America now. And I think that having a queen who doesn't involve herself with politics but acts as a kind of unifying feature sort of stops UK politics and UK culture from being from becoming too divisive mm. you know there's different political parties in the UK and they squabble but for example when the Queen dies they all sort of come together and I think that's the sort of unifying 
kind of role that she plays, and I think it stops everything from becoming too extreme. Yes. Uh, and she's everybody th- everybody's third granny as well. Of course. You know, yeah. I I I I've got uh, two grannies. One of them died about six years ago. She was similar age to the Queen, I think, a bit younger, 92, 93. And I've got uh, one who's hanging on, my mother's mother. She's my only last remaining grandparent. She's 91, I think. And the Queen is the other one, I reckon. Uh, she's my third granny, and she's just shuffled off. Mm. She's, she's, she's left the room. Yeah. You know, she's uh, departed this world. Yeah. So I've got one left. Well, like you said, I hope it's a, it's a smooth sort of transaction because... In a, I think in the UK now it'd be crazy over there. Lots of mourning, mm. but mm. even Australia, we're a Commonwealth. Mm. All, all our money's got the Queen on the, we've got the Union Jack on of our course. flag. And of all course. That. I think they said she's been to Australia sixteen times. Oh, crackers! So yeah, lucky lady. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I was actually reading something the other day where I found it interesting. Like maybe in Australia more than other countries, there might be a bit of a movement to remove the monarchy. But uh, they said, the article said that maybe now that's a bit more likely because uh, maybe the Australians don't, not everyone likes the monarchy, but everyone loved the Queen. So Mm. everyone was happy to put up with the Queen. Whereas now it's Charles and there might be another bit of a movement. I mean, I'm not Australian, so I don't really have a cultural background. They, they voted, we voted for Republican and we voted to change our flag, but neither of them won. Oh yeah. Because the opposition or the the party that was going to come in if they won, they didn't didn't accept it, or the the Australian people didn't accept uh, the people that were going to come in and then or change all the rules and. Sure. uh, So maybe in the future, but I I don't think it's going to happen anytime. I'll be shocked if it happened sooner or later. I think so. I think so. So would I. I think Australia. Well, that's what they were saying. They were saying that it might have been a bit of a riff with the monarchy because Australia were talking about being a republic and yeah. trying to get away from oh, well. from that. But uh, no, definitely not. There's full, there's full respect. I wouldn't there. expect it to. I think. Mm. I think last year it might have been Barbados. Um, it sort of announced its intentions to become a republic mm. and so on. Uh, but that's a sort of it's a very small country in the Caribbean. Yeah. Uh, I think Australia would be a sort of, you know, a very big economy and so on. I think it would be a bit more of a historical event uh, and maybe a bit of a slower process. Mm. Yeah. See. I'm always interested to ask, Johnny, we're all here in China, the people that I've met, why China? Tell us about that. What was the decision? What, what made it so fascinating to come to China and, and work here and be here? Anyone that has lived in a China, I think, from a foreign country, has some sort of story. Sure. How you got there? Why did you come here? Sure. Uh, I think I'm quite influenced by my parents. When my parents were in their 20s and until their mid-30s, they travelled and taught uh, in several different countries. So I kind, of, I kind of grew up with the expectation that I would spend quite a lot of time abroad and probably in education. So that's one thing. I, I think I, I sort of always predicted traveling and working quite a lot at this age. And the other thing was I, I had been in Spain. I was teaching English in the south of Spain in a beautiful mm. small town near Sevilla. And I was, I was getting into my career, uh, mid-twenties. 
and I was really enjoying teaching Spanish, uh, teaching English and learning Spanish and living in a foreign country. Um, and, you know, I started to sort of figure out what I want to do with my career. And although I loved Spain, I think I had the reflection that Spain was not necessarily a country to build your career in. Possibly not too many long-term growth opportunities. Um, I think I could have stayed there teaching English for 10 and 15 years yes. and being very happy. Mm. But I don't think that I necessarily would have sort of you know, risen through the ranks and become a sort of more senior person in any kind of organisation. I thought career opportunities were relatively limited in Spain. Mm. Um, Why is that? Well, I think especially that region of Spain, the south of Spain in Andalusia, is probably still quite affected by the financial crash oh, in 2008. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a relatively poor region of Spain. Um, and also I think it's a slightly, especially with the English language market there it's possibly a bit of a sort of uh, retiree destination um, there were certainly lots of young teachers but there were also lots of teachers who were in their 60s and semi-retired and they you know they wanted the quiet life by the beach with a bit of teaching right. and therefore like a lot of the industry was sort of set up in that way a bit mm. and you know also I might be wrong you know I mean I was in my mid-20s when I was reflecting on this and although I lived in Spain, I don't count myself to be a Spanish expert or anything, I might have read the situation wrong. But I think I've always been, you know, you asked me why China, I think I've mm. always been motivated to sort of uh, move on up and explore more and become a better person and have more responsibilities. Mm. And rightly or wrongly, I think I decided that Spain at that time was not the right option. Mm. Um, but while I was in Spain, I learned Spanish. Um, Spanish is not perfect, but um, it's very operable. Um, I can certainly function in Spanish very well. And I really enjoyed that because I've learned languages in school, but they kind of gone in my head and then fallen out again. Mm. Um, but sort of being in the mix of another language uh, and having to use it every day was, was very good. And I became quite attached to that as well, not just living in foreign countries, but also foreign cultures as well. And I think that when I was reflecting about, uh, you know, is Spain going to offer me the kind of sort of career and personal development opportunities that I might be interested in, and I thought possibly not, I maybe thought that China would be a very good option um, as a sort of rapidly growing economy and rapidly growing business market, largest population in the world. And it seemed, yes. I've always been quite attached to the idea of jumping in the deep end. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, you know, you know, putting yourself almost in the most uncomfortable position you could be in uh, to see how you do. China and the UK, you know, are not totally alien to one another, mm. but just about as different as you could really be in terms of culture, language, society, uh, possibly with the exception of Japan. Um, and my brother had worked in Japan actually oh. uh, previously, so actually that's a good point. Right. Now I mentioned Japan, I remember my, my brother had worked in Japan for about 18 months. I've been here much longer than he was ever there. And I visited him in Japan, and that's another, another worldly kind of place, uh, Japan. And I thought, well, I might do the same thing, go to the Far East. Yeah, right. I chose China, Beijing originally. And for you to 
at the start of living in China? Was it a big sort of, because you've done so much traveling, was it a shock mm. to the system to adapt? Yeah, but I think I thrive a little bit in the sort of deep end, like I say. I, I say in a way, I feel most comfortable. I, it certainly was uh, shocking insofar as when I first moved to Beijing, I only worked in Beijing for one school year before I came to Shanghai. Um, probably up until Christmas of that first year, my job completely was my life. Uh, you know, I lived five minutes from school. I made friends a bit with some of the people I worked with. I'm still friends there now, and everything kind of revolved around school. I didn't, I didn't know where to go. Didn't know what to do to explore in Beijing. I, I, I kept it narrow. Yes. Um, and that I would say that process took quite a long time to, to sort of you know start to have a bit of my own life. I think that's quite common for people who move here. Yeah. You know, uh, if people move here for the first time, yeah. you know, maybe their first six months are very sort of attached to their work and the people they meet at work. And then this year for you, Johnny, has been ticking off some major goals in your career. Sure. So tell us a little bit about, a little bit of a review for this year, 2022. Well, I mean, put simply, in 2022, I've started um, an online business which is very much platform focused now, but in due course will develop into sort of fully licensed business, possibly registered in China. I already own a business that's registered in the UK mm. and I'm gonna connect those dots a bit. Um, and I do what I suppose you could describe as educational consultancy. Right. Um, lots of university students, not exclusively university students, but they want help and advice and guidance about applying for universities or, um, you know, even dissertation advice, um, sort of like extra guidance, you know, maybe what their supervisors at uni don't tell them, I right. tell them. I also do some, some English teaching with a couple of really interesting clients all around the world. And that, that has happened because I've been, you know, I've been using some of these Chinese platforms like Xiaohongshu and, you know, it really, really accelerated very quickly. It took off really quick. I mean, you're getting so much, a lot of downloads. Yes. There's 85,000 followers at the moment, which is an absurd amount. Um, and that did happen very quickly. Um, so certainly people think I've got something helpful and relevant to say. Yes. And I also think that uh, there are some vaguely similar pages online and available in China, but um, I think it's a relatively unique niche online for people. And certainly there's lots of Chinese students who want to study in the UK, especially. Yeah. I focus on UK universities especially, but not exclusively. You know, it's also good because that market constantly regenerates. You know, people might graduate from university. Well, then you've got new people who are just about to go to university. Uh, and it's going through that process at the moment. So people find it valuable. And yeah, I mean, my process these days is normally record a short video, hmm. two minutes max, one minute best. Saying something loud, fast and clear about normally about academic writing, you know, writing an essay, what to do, what not to do, how to think, how not to think. And um, certainly some of them get a lot of interactions and traction, uh, most of them. 
occasionally they don't. Uh, and actually, some of my favourite videos that I've made are the ones that don't. You know, I, th I think I've got some great videos that yes. are really helpful for people. Yes. And, you know, it didn't really quite take off. It was maybe slightly too specific. Right. It was too niche. Right. Um, uh, and what happens is, you know, people find that very helpful yes. and people sort of incorporate it into their writing. But also, each video will result in people sending me messages saying, hi, that video is really helpful. Can you help me even more? And then we establish a sort of professional relationship. Uh, I met with some new clients today. Um, That's great. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's application season at the moment. So, right. uh, you know, lots of, uh, quite soon, actually not quite yet, but people are preparing for it. Um, lots of British universities are opening their applications for next year, for this time next year, to join a university in the UK. So yeah. I was going to say, like, does it go through phases of, of growth for your business? Like, is it up and down? Like, okay, exams are coming soon. Okay, sure. you get an influx of kids. Or? Sure, I'm still figuring that out a little bit. I think it's relatively predictable. I think that there was a lot of growth in my page and presence online in about March and April and May for two reasons. One of them was the Shanghai lockdown, which meant that everybody was stuck right. at home and if they had essays, well, I'm gonna use this time to write my essay. Yes. And that, I think that was a sort of um, blessing in disguise for me. And secondly, I also think that's the sort of busy part of the year. You know, if you're doing a one year master's program in the UK, it will start in September and it will finish in about June and probably March, April and May is a really busy period. You know, you're gearing up for the end of the year. You've got a lot of work to do. Um, and that's maybe that's maybe sort of March, April and uh, May is maybe the time of year where people are really starting to roll up their sleeves. They've started the year, they've had some fun, but now it's time to get to work. Yes. Um, and then after that, in about June and July, I had a lot of dissertation requests. You know, people are writing their big thesis, you know, 10,000 words, 20,000 words. Um, and that's a lot of it's a lot of work for them and a lot of work for me mm. and that to be honest that's actually still going on a bit I would say that now is the tail end of dissertation season I've got a couple of people whose dissertations are sort of formally due next week or something and it's the start of application season okay. and also it's the start of you know applying for next year like uh, one year from now might also I've got some people contact me recently saying, well, I've, I've applied, I've been accepted, I'm going to the UK in two weeks. Yes. So I want your help. You know, and even some people will say, oh, I want your academic help and guidance, but I also, also want your sort of cultural and social advice. You know, what's, you know we can meet sometimes mm. and you can explain, you know, how to get on and be happy in the UK, things I can do, things I can explore. Oh. So that's something I'm, that's something I'm interested in expanding into. That's something that sort of um, happened quite naturally in response to their requests. Yes. But maybe, maybe in the future, I'll actually plan content a bit yeah. like that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's certainly going very well, and it certainly keeps me very busy. Your first question today was about our new home. Yes, and I told you I I like the outside space mm -hmm. for the fresh air, especially in case there's no lockdown. But uh, I got I got a private office as well in my house, um, which is which is very nice to have uh, a sort of space to truly focus and work, uh, meet people and, you know, really, really sort of meet clients' needs. It's not so much privately, hmm. but sort of like, um, you know, almost like a sort of 
sacred space. You know? <laughs> like when I'm out here, I'm chilling. When I go in there, it's work hat on. Um, and I really like having that. In our old home, we, we, you know, our dining table was also my desk, was also where we hung out, was also where we right. did everything. It was, it was all much more, all in one spot. So it's just you at the moment, but... It's just me. Surely you have a bit of a team working with you at yeah. the moment? Well, start. yeah, I've got, I've got some ideas for expansion. I, I, I sometimes have a little bit of support with communicating with people originally. I mean, if I'm very, very busy with, um, you know, my current clients and mm. current students, but then I, got, I get bombarded with messages from people who are possibly interested, I have a bit of support, you know, with the initial communication. And I'm certainly thinking about um, expansion in several ways. I tell myself not to be in too much of a rush. Mm. Uh, sometimes I'm very hard on myself. I tell myself, you should be doing that today. You know, <laughs> yes. why aren't you doing that now? Yes. Um, but I think that, you know, not only this year and the sort of relative success that I've had, but I think life in general is a combination of plans that are well executed, but also sort of following your nose and seeing what works. So, you know, slightly unplanned yeah. things and yeah. reacting to what happens. So I got, I got a bit of an idea for expansion. Uh, one, one of them is, at the moment, I've been helping quite a lot with university applications, but sometimes I get a lot of messages about UK high, high school applications, you know, private schools, you know, the really posh private schools. You know, parents might message me saying, my son's 14, I want him to go to Eton, or something right. like that. Yeah. And sometimes I reply, and I say, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask. Mm. And sometimes I don't reply. But I think it's something I could expand into. And I think I knew, I know a few people in China who have that kind of experience. I mean, there's a, there's a business and an industry here which, which formally helps that with that kind of thing, agencies. And also, my previous work was very child-focused. Uh, early years, kindergartens in China, certainly under the age of about eight. I mean, I've had experience working with older children, teenagers and adults too. Yes. But the majority of it in China is working with children aged between two to seven. And I will certainly re-enter that arena at some point. I think that what I'm doing at the moment keeps me very busy. But uh, that's, in some ways, that's the level where I have the highest degree of expertise and experience yes. and possibly over the last six months I've been enjoying my soiree into yeah. sort of university stuff but I may be starting to miss the kids a bit so yeah. you know there might be uh, English language programs for, for kids in China with a very because I'm running this now by myself I have full autonomy over the curriculum that I would teach which is right. very attractive too because mm. I've worked in some poor curriculums before um, <laughs> and uh, you know even even after Covid is finished you know operating for Chinese students under the age of 18 but in the UK for summer schools mm. and so on um, that's something I'll definitely expand into but that might be something that happens over the next five years rather, right. rather than the next five months uh, lots of plans. I think it's good to have these plans, expand, but not force the expansion. Mm. And also, last year, another major milestone, and that's when I met you for the first time, uh, was that you were studying I was. Uh, for your master's I was. in education yes. at Oxford University. Yes. 
Now, of all the credits you could get anywhere in the world in terms of university for what your business is now, it's a great advantage. It's, so, that's certainly true. So tell us about how you balanced work Oof. and study. <laughs> I mean... Uh, honestly... I saw you sometimes. Not, was... not hugely effectively, <laughs> a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, sure. I mean, if you look at the results, uh, if, if you take the sort of result-based view, I guess I did manage it because yeah. you know, I graduated and I completed my work responsibilities. It's an amazing achievement. But, um, you know, I was certainly very busy. Academic and, coordinator uh, <laughs> and, and, and studying. <laughs> I was certainly very busy. And, you know, it, it, it certainly, I mean, that was actually a two-year program, uh, especially because I was working professionally in China at the same time. And, you know, working full-time in a kindergarten, no less. So, you know, I was, at that course that I was doing was teacher education and educational leadership. So te the teacher education aspect is kind of educating educators, teaching teachers. Yes. Teaching teachers how to teach. You know, it's quite funny, <laughs> yeah. really. Um, and I was doing that in a, a school where I, I certainly had opportunities to spread my wings, but first and foremost, at the same time, I had a class of 20 children. You know, they were a great class of 20 children, but they were also a relatively challenging group. Yes. Uh, you know, I loved them, but they were energetic and... and uh, the levels of English were... Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that was, you know, that has to be your number one focus all the time. So certainly I was busy and, you know, coming home after work and writing whatever project I had to do and also sort of doing research investigations within the regular school timetable because, you know, I had to go and observe. Yeah, I, I, did I come to observe your classes sometimes? I observed several teachers' classes um, and pre prepared sort of uh, professional development sessions Weekly based meetings. on them. Yes, and it was, oh, yeah. it was a busy time. And... I'm, I'm happy that I'm able to put that into practice now. It's funny how life works. I told you before that, you know, the, the, in my opinion, the best plans are a combination of well-thought-out plans that you see through, but also responding to the situation. Yes. And I think this is a good example, because even when I was doing that course a year ago, I expected my, the next steps in my life and my career to be a bit more sort of school-based, institution-focused, you know, possibly in the school where we were working, mm. you know, become a manager or a more senior manager and have a sort of level of academic responsibility over a wide number of teachers. Yes. And that, that happened. Um, I mean, it, it happened for a year and that's a very good experience, but I perhaps expected that to be the case for six or seven years. Right. But, you know, there's certain situations this year that were mostly unpredictable mm. I've sort of shifted my focus but I end up doing it I end up doing the same kind of thing in a different arena because those kind of skills that you learn at a place like Oxford but also at university in general mm. are transferable you know they're not institution specific if I had learned those things properly it wouldn't only be applicable in our school I can transfer them to different schools and different businesses and my own business and still be successful and so on. So that certainly was that certainly was a very busy time. And I'm happy it's over, yeah. to be honest. Uh, and now look at you now with the new business, much yeah. more flexible with your time. Oh, yeah, it's lovely. 
Yeah. It's lovely. I mean, I work from home in my office. Yes. And that's lovely. Where, well, I mean, where we used to work together is out in Pudong. Yes. And, you know, from where I lived, you, know, it's, uh, you know, you're leaving the house at 6.30 every morning to get there on time. These days, you know, and, you know, the car, you know, if the car's quick, it might take 35 minutes, but if the car's slow, it might take an hour. Whereas now, my commute is five minutes <laughs> from there to over there, which is nice. Yes. Um, and it's also nice because I live with my girlfriend and, you know, <laughs> she she sleeps. She likes sleeping in the morning. You know, she sleeps in. So I get a lot of work done by the time she wakes up. You know, yeah, the time is my own. It's good. It means that I can control what I do and when I do it. Mm. That on, on the other hand, it sometimes means that I've got a very busy schedule during the weekend, mm. sometimes. You know, clients might have deadlines on a Monday morning at 7 a.m. And, you know, that might mean that I've got to meet with them on Saturdays and Sundays. But, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. The flexibility is nice. You mentioned it earlier about uh, the COVID uh, sort of changing things and, yeah. you know, planning around it. So how, how was it for you? I do believe you were in both of the lockdowns here in China. Oh, uh, I was in this one. Right. I wasn't in the first one two years ago. Okay. I wasn't. I was on holiday in Thailand when it oh. started because it was Chinese New Year. Right. I, I went to Phuket in Thailand, which I absolutely love. Yes. And I suppose that possibly it had just about started when I went to Thailand. But while I was in Thailand, the news really swelled. Right. <clears throat> and, you know, schools closed. And I wasn't expected back at school after Chinese New Year. And therefore, for a while, I extended my stay in Thailand. I ended up being in Thailand for about five weeks. Right. Um, five, I mean, I really love Thailand, mm. but five weeks of sort of luxury holiday swimming pools and beaches is enough for me. Yeah. I, I, I don't quite have that attachment to luxury. Yes. Uh, and eventually, I made a decision to go home and see my family. And I did that, and I flew back, and... And then, it, and then after I flew back, travel back to the UK became much harder and all yeah. international travel stopped. And I, I ended up staying there for more than six months because Chinese borders were closed. Uh, unforgettable, very memorable and very positive experience. Spending time with my family in a weird circumstance. You know, spending lots of time with my younger sister as well in our home in Wales. Very enjoyable, but also by the time the Chinese border had opened, uh, for people who already had residence permits and visas and so on in about August 2020 even though the flights were extremely expensive I came back quick as pos quick right. as pos to, to, to start again and for, and for this one that happened this year I mean I ended up going home for both of them you did, you did. so what was it like in China and Europe so well, I, didn't, I, did? I didn't mind <laughs> I didn't mind um well, I don't want to describe myself as antisocial because that sounds negative, but I, I'm perfectly happy on my own. Yes. I can fill my time reading books and so on. And also, it coincided quite a lot with me starting to get quite a lot of traction online. Mm. So I had a bit of a distraction. I rolled up my sleeves and kept doing that, and that was successful. And also, like I said before, our new house has got two areas of outside space. Our old home was much smaller and much more simple, but we had a shared roof. The two other apartments next door, we had a shared roof. And the weather was nice. So, you know, you could break up your day a little bit. You can 
you can work in the morning, read your book on the roof, have a little sleep, wait, wake up in the afternoon, do a bit more work, and hey presto. I don't know. I, it didn't bother me that much. It didn't bother me. I think maybe my my, my girlfriend sort of missed her friends more. Yes. And missed, you know, even like going to work and seeing colleagues and so on. Uh, you know, having that sort of daily interaction, daily routine more. I think she really need, needed that more for her sort of happiness and so on. Whereas I think I was a bit more adaptable. And uh, yeah, maybe maybe the one thing we struggled with in our, in our lockdown was our house was a bit smaller. Right. You know, not much space. Our old house was, you know, it was very much like a open plan loft kind of thing, you know, where it's one room, you know, and therefore sort of, I get on very well with my girlfriend, but sort of like any kind of private space or private time was a bit hard to come by. Yeah. Uh, and our new home here is a bit, is a bit better for that. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I, I didn't mind it. I read a lot as well. Yeah, that's, that's good. Taking advantage of this time, like, oh, yeah. just don't just sit there and just... Well, I think in life you've got to make the most of the situation. Yeah. You dealt. Why can't you dealt? I, I, I'm just, like, planning for... Uh, when, when I get out, I want to do this, 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 yes. this, and this. And this yeah. is how I'm going to do it. Okay, let's go. Yeah, so, yeah. Just take advantage of that, of that time that you have off. Let's go back to... Uh, where you grew up. So I do believe you, you grew up in England. I, yeah. Well, until I was seven. Right. Yes, I was born in East Sussex in a small town called Hastings, which is quite famous for um, the Battle of Hastings in 1066, uh, which is when the Fr- uh, French Norman king, William the Conqueror, came over the Channel and invaded England. And that's when we became a bit more, that's when we started to become a bit more modernised and a bit more European and cultured rather than sort of barbarian <laughs> British people beyond the sea. So yeah. I was born there, it's a historical town, quite famous in the UK. But um, uh, when I was seven, my dad, I, I don't think he started a business with my uncle, but I think, I think my uncle had already started a business and my dad joined his business. Right. And the business was centred in Edinburgh in Scotland. Okay. So we moved up to Scotland um, just before my eighth birthday. Uh, and then I spent my entire childhood in or near Edinburgh in Scotland. Right. Uh, all at the same school. So what, what memories did you have there growing up in England? Well, um, that's a good question. Uh, I think that because I'd, uh, I'd turned... Uh, seven by the time I got I certainly have some memories hmm. uh, I think that like my older brother who's two and a half years younger, older than me right. I think he's much more considers himself to be from the south of England right. you know he's got more memories yes. you know, his, his, his childhood time there was more substantial if you ask me are you Scottish I'd say well no I'm not Scottish but I'm sort of semi-Scottish yes. you know I think if you ask my brother are you Scottish he'd say no you know, uh, my memories. I remember that my school had um, sort of grounds a bit. Uh, the, certainly, the school I went to in Edinburgh did not have grounds. You know, like it had a sort of mini forest and so on, and it had like little ponds. And we used to go sort of exploring with the. Uh, it, it was a much more sort of natural school uh, with sort of natural space, and we spent a lot of time outside. And we used to go into ponds and sort of investigate the sort of. Um, what are frogs called before they're tadpoles? Yeah, we used to do that kind of stuff. It's a bit more natural base for education. We, it's also on the seaside. 
Um, as well so you know at the weekend you know not the whole year but you know you know you spend time at the seaside you know swimming maybe but also sort of wandering along the promenade and so on there was a bit of an arcade area uh, sort of fish and chips by the sea and so on yeah I I remember that I also remember you know my, my, my mother's from London which is not very far away and I, I and my, my my father's mother is Welsh, and even South Wales is not so far away as it is from Edinburgh. Mm. So I remember we used to travel to see them more. You know, we used to like go see my grandma for the afternoon in London. You know, it's an hour and a half drive, an hour and a half back, and hey presto, there, there you go. Whereas when we move to Scotland, it's more like a four hundred mile distance. Right. You know, I, I I think we didn't. Uh, I think we didn't do that so much. So I remember every Christmas time when my Welsh granny was still around, my dad would we'd get in the car in Hastings and we'd drive to South Wales and pick her up and bring her back again. So I've got that memory. Yeah. But I suppose most of my memories are really from Edinburgh. I would describe myself as, I'm not Scottish, <laughs> but I've probably got more memories of Scotland. So it's sort of semi-Scottish in a way. Right. Um, very different there. My school was much more much more formal, you know, yep. ties up to 11 and stuff. And what did your mum and dad do? Were they involved in the education, like oh, yeah. you earned as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd say that my, my dad and my career is very similar, uh, to, to the extent where I, I think I'm sort of like a modelled adaptation of my dad. He, he, his, I mean, he was older than me when he started his business. Right. Uh, he was in his late 30s. It's summer schools originally for more European students, Italians especially, you know, learning English during the summer for six weeks, six week intensive course learning English in London, Edinburgh. Right. And I, I think it expanded to be like all year. And I think maybe originally it was for under 18s, but after a while it became for adults as well. And so, I, you know, I, I've got a vision that's sort of relatively similar to what he did, but with a sort of Chinese focus. And so very, very education based. And, uh, you know, my mother was an English teacher. Actually, for a while, my mother worked for my father. You know, he right. like, you know, they, you know, my dad had the business, and they might have had five schools around the UK in different locations around the UK, and every school had twenty teachers, and yeah. she was one of them in one of the one of the schools. Did you feel sort of like pressured when you went to school to sort of please your father? Your no. father was very academic. No, not at all. My no. dad isn't academic, not really. Oh, I mean, right. he's very well read. He reads all the time, yeah. but it's very uh, self-initiated. I mean, my dad went to university in Reading, so, you know, he's certainly educated and qualified, but my dad, far more than my mum, is from a really simple South Wales mining village. Right. You know, You know, if you go back on my dad's side a couple of generations, what you've got is you've got a couple of miners who were dying at the age of 35, right. you know? Yeah, and no, no academic pressure from him, not really, you know, in, in, the, in the most... In the calmest kind of, you know, so long as you're not failing kind of way, he was he was quite attached. My dad wasn't necessarily around all the time. You know, he's running a business with lots of um, lots of lots of clients and organisations in Spain, Italy, Germany. You know, he went to Italy twice a month for four days. You know, he's often away, bringing in the bacon. Yes. And my mum, no, she was very hands off as well. I was actually chatting with my mum about this the other day, about sort of. You know, maybe Chinese parents, the typical Chinese parents sort of academic uh, oversight versus what I experienced back home. 
and I, I think that really my parents cared about if I was happy, basically yes. doing fine at school, had friends, and you know. I also, I also think my parents are relatively laissez-faire and relaxed about these things, almost like they don't take childhood too seriously. Hmm. Um, you know, my dad might say things. He might have said things to me before that were a bit like, um, "If you're still acting that way when you're 25, maybe I'll tell you to pull your socks off." You know, <laughs> but I think he had quite a sort of relaxed attitude. Yes. Uh, whereas 15, I, I have that now. It's actually a really interesting question, especially because you and I have been taught, have been teaching, you know, young Chinese kids, five yeah. years old and so on. I was going to ask this question, <laughs> you know, when you, compare you, it to yeah. the Chinese kids. You know, you do sometimes get parents who, you know, they're, they're, they're very loving parents and they're very invested in their kids' future and they're certainly part of the Chinese culture. Well, you know, they might ask relatively intense questions. Mm. About, you know, how's he doing? How's his reading level? You know, what's his reading level at now? What's his maths like? Can he do the nine times table? <laughs> and I'll say, and, and you know, I, I've said this to a few quite intense Chinese parents before. I say, listen, my opinion is that you should stop trying to have a perfect five-year-old. Yes. Because in my experience, even people I know and went to school with, people who are perfect when they are five years old, are really perfect when they are 25 years old. Mm. Uh, you know, they sort, of, they sort of peak very early in life. You know, they, they win maths awards and spelling competitions when they're nine years old and so on. And then for, for, sort of slightly for the rest of their life, they're a bit, bit downhill, to be honest. Yeah. And I tell parents, what you're aiming for is you're not aiming for a perfect five-year-old. What you're aiming for is providing a, a really good childhood that helps to create a perfect 25-year-old. Bit of yeah. like a burnout, yeah. right? You should assess your child when you're 25. Yeah. You know, he's, he's finished university. He finished university a couple of years ago. Mm. His education, not just his education in terms of learning subjects and so on, but also sort of like getting to grips with adulthood and, you know, finding his own way in the world is just about finishing. What's his status? All right, he's doing mostly well. I think that's what you're aiming for here. So I think my parents I think my parents provided that and they were not too serious. Well, speaking of young kids, what, what's your opinion on homework then? Uh, on who? Homework. Homework? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, ooh, for kids in kindergarten, no homework. First of all, I, I would basically say borderline no homework and any homework that does take place should be relatively creatively focused, collaborative with parents, you know, totally great. singing projects, painting projects and occasional ones as well. I think academic homework for four year olds is uh, wrong, um, actually it's pretty clear it's wrong, uh, whether it's reading assignments, writing assignments, writing is probably especially for boys, the, the last stage of literacy to really start to develop. Mm. And I think it can be really negative for young children if they're forced to write too much too early. Yeah. And yeah. also, I think that when it comes to homework, just as much as the kids, you need to consider the parents. Because this, this is probably slightly less of an issue in China than it is back home. Because many, many families in China only have one kid. Mm. But back home, it's much more common for parents to have two, three, four kids. And 
I've had the experience in China where parents come to me, relatively proactive parents, they've got one child that they dote on, and they're great parents, you know, they're lovely people, but they've got one child and they've got bundles of time, and they say, oh, we'd like to have some homework, we'd like some writing homework, and you give mm. some writing homework for the whole class. And what I think in my head is, okay, I understand you want some homework, but what I think and don't say was, well, there's another parent in our class who's got four kids. Yes. And you know, two of those kids are twelve and fifteen. Yes. And they've got real they've got real bloody homework. Yes. I can assure you that me sending home homework and saying complete this by tomorrow and bring it in could be actually really quite devastating to their family. you know, if those parents want to sort of follow the rules and do as the teacher says, that could actually be quite devastating to their evening. Mm. You know, you've got multiple you got you know, you know, you've got cooking family dinner, trying to get everyone ready, you've got four kids running around. You know, you've got kids who are older kids who are possibly studying for exams or something. And then, you know, suddenly the father or the mother has to spend one hour trying to get the child to write the word the correctly <laughs> for, no, for no particular reason. Yeah. Uh, so I actually, I actually think sometimes that homework can be a big imposition on parents who have multiple responsibilities and, uh, you know, multiple children. And I also think that over, uh, overemphasizing academic achievement for four-year-olds is actually the opposite of beneficial hmm. um, yeah I think it goes back to that burnout and, and I understand that they want to get like good grades and sure. be ready for their exams and tests for schools but sure. I also think they want to keep their kids busy you yeah know? Uh, you know you got to have stuff to do especially maybe when there's only one kid in the house yeah uh, you know not someone to play with after school you know your kids in, but when you go home you got to provide stuff for the kids to do right well, you can play Lego for half an hour and then after that you're doing your English homework English homework, four-year-old, <laughs> writing, yes. right, copying out sentences. Ugh. You know, the, first of all, the child, him or herself, would never proactively choose to do that, mm. which means that they're doing something that's being foisted on them, which means that they don't necessarily learn the art of autonomy and choosing what they want to do there's a certain amount of sort of background resentment in their head they might not be conscious of the fact that they feel resentment but they probably do i think it's always best to wait for the kid i mean one day if you never do english writing homework with the kid and the english uh, in school the english writing activities in school is basically all they've got one day your child is going to come home and say, Mummy, do you want to practice doing some writing with me? And that will be self-initiated. Yes. And that's so much more valuable. Yes. Because it means that they've conceptualised the importance of it themselves. Academic is your work. It's your life. Uh, education is your life. You've studied it. But a little birdie told me maybe six months ago the, the story about you actually being quite uh, sporty. Oh, yeah. And you were part of the rug, couple of rugby teams, right. uh, representative rugby teams. Yes. Tell us about that. That's true. Well, yeah, that's true in the past. <laughs> it's yes, not in true the past. anymore. Yes. These days I like swimming, especially. Yeah. And I actually, I skip on my roof as regularly as I yeah, can. Right. Yeah, right. Like, I like doing the skipping. Um, that, that's part of my morning routine. I'll have a coffee, I'll go on the roof and skip 50 times. And uh, that's how I sort of function. But I haven't done it in more than 10 years now because it was mainly in high school. But uh, certainly in high school, I was in the first 15 rugby team. Oh. Even, even you know, some of the boys, they, they were in the first 15 in their last year of high school. 
But uh, me and a couple of other boys, I'm trying to remember their names, there was a boy called Jack Hanny who was very good. Uh, Ross McPhail was very good, very Scottish name, <laughs> Ross McPhail. Uh, and there was, there was a guy called Alex Haggett who I was quite good friends with. He was very good as well. Uh, the, that, that bunch of us, we, we were in the first 15 rugby team, um, sort of even in our third last year of high school. You know, we were, we were 15, but we were playing against, some of the others we were playing with were 18. And we did that, you know, we did that three times a week training and we had chis every Saturday morning. And our team and our school, high, our school team was very good. We, t- in my three years in the first 15, every year we reached the final of the Scottish Cup, which was played in Murrayfield, which is really? the, uh, right. which is the uh, international stadium in Scotland, where Scotland national team played mm. their matches. Yeah. And the first year we won, and I was, I, you know, I was in the team, I was in the squad, but I might have come off the bench on that day. Yeah. I was 15 years old, uh, but we won. And the second year we lost, and the third year we won. Um, and you know that's a really big feeling. You know, I mean, the, the stadium wasn't full. I think it holds seventy thousand people. Yeah. I, think, I think on that day, maybe twenty thousand people. Even were still, there. twenty thousand. That's still a, a lot pretty of good, fe- pretty good <laughs> feeling. Um, and yeah, I also had some interactions a little bit with some of the Scottish youth teams. Oh, I remember right. when I was about sixteen or seventeen, I was actually chosen to go to a sort of uh, Scotland national youth camp mm. uh, during the summer. Believe it or not, Scottish summer. That camp was called off for bad weather. <laughs> it was called so off for bad weather. Yeah. It was supposed to be sort of camping in it, like sort of ever so slightly army style. And I think it might be called off for bad weather. But that, that, that was, I was very proud of that. Mm. I was also proud of that as well because, you know, I went to the kind of school, you know, I was English in Scotland. And, you know, Scotland's a great country. Uh, you know, some people want to be independent. But... Um, I think that's grown more and more in the last 10 years. I think, it's, I think it's not absolutely straightforward to be an English person living in Scotland. You do get sort of undercurrents of things quite regularly, just sort of comments all the time. English bastard. <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, so yes. I, I, I always felt a bit like an outsider, uh, you know, not in, a, not in a miserable kind of way. I also went to Argentina and Chile on a tour. With that kind of group, yeah, right, and uh, that was amazing. I was so young when that happened. I think my seventeenth birthday was when I was there. But that, I mean, that's just an incredible experience when you're that young. I think our club and you know that organisation had done previous tours, but maybe to Australia and South Africa and New yeah. Zealand. You know, English-speaking countries. Yes, I think our group was the first time. I mean, Argentina now, a big rugby team. You know, they beat yeah. the All Blacks a couple of weeks ago. It's amazing. Um, it's incredible. Uh, but I think maybe, you know, uh, when was this? It was about 13 years ago. Maybe then Argentinian rugby was still quite nascent, you know, still growing. Mm. And we were one of the first groups to go there. And I mean, incredible. I mean, I was so young that in some ways it's hard to remember it in detail. Yeah. But we flew to Chile first and we played oh. a couple of teams in Chile, you know, with yeah. the Andes in the background. You know, Chile really is long wow. and thin, you know, the mountains are always there wherever you go. You know, under these mountains, you know, the rugby pitches. And we were only in Chile for about five days, but we were in Argentina for about three weeks. And we went to, um, I remember the names of the cities. It was Cordoba. There's another city in Spain called Cordoba. Um, which is very beautiful but we went to Argentina in Cordoba and Mendoza is the name of another city and Buenos Aires and you know we travelled around in the bus actually when we went from Chile to Argentina we flew from Santiago to I I guess Cordoba in Argentina it's a very short flight 
through yeah. the mountains. That's what it is. And yeah. the, the, the operable word there is through. Through the mountains, <laughs> not over the mountains. <laughs> oh, I remember that. It was about yeah. a 40 minute flight. We're going outside of the plane window, above you was the mountains. You know, you're flying through the ridges, you're flying through the valley. Now, that was very unforgettable. I also remember about Argentina, the steak. I mean, they eat steak. So they eat steak for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know. Oh yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah. In the Buenos Aires. Yeah. yeah. And we took. Uh, I think we took. Uh, I think we took a bus so from. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. I think we took a bus from Mendoza to Buenos Aires, and I think it was four hundred miles. And yeah. I think it was just like cows the whole way, <laughs> just like cows. Like in the UK, you kind of get motorways with sheep at the side of the road. Yeah. It was the same kind of thing, but just cows everywhere, like millions of cows. I, I, I quite like that, you know. <laughs> I stayed with a few families. Argentina is oh. really interesting. Building, kind of that's great. Yeah, like yeah. host families, you know. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I think Argentina is a really interesting country because uh, even now for the Argentine rugby team, you sometimes get players who play for them. But like their name is John Williams and stuff. Because, you know, their great-great-grandfather emigrated to Argentina in the mm. 1880s or something. You know, some of these Argentine families I've played with, I, I come from quite a normal family. In Argentina, they weren't normal families. You know? yeah. They are living in mansions and so on. Yeah, right. uh, so, a very, very curious experience. Very, very life-affirming. That was one big trip I did when I was still a teenager. Mm. I went to Argentina, and I think a year later... I went to Malawi in Africa. Ah. That was amazing. In fact, overall, that was probably better. Actually, I've forgotten one thing about the rugby tour. This is very funny. I broke my collarbone 10 minutes into the first game oh, in Chile. No. I had to go to hospital. And for, the rest, for the rest of that four-week trip, I was the water boy. Ah. Uh, which, I mean, in, in some ways, I didn't... You know, I, you know, I was still there. You know, yeah. It's better than breaking your collarbone before you go and you can't go. Yeah. Uh, and you know it meant I was a bit more touristy you know rather than sort of training every day did that end up stopping your rugby career or no I it... think what stopped my rugby career a little bit was really sort of going to university oh, I, th yeah. I think I think sort of at I mean I could have obviously done it at university too but I think at school I basically had to play rugby you know yeah. the rules and I think I was quite a big boy I was quite naturally sporty I sort of ended up doing it yeah. you know by default Whereas I think in university you get a bit more, I was maybe keen to explore a bit, you know, maybe a bit of a different identity. You know, the thing about rugby is it's a great sport and I really love rugby. But the thing is, is like the, the social scene that surrounds rugby is not necessarily my cup of tea. You know, a lot of drinking, a lot of sort of chug, chug, chug mm. mates. Yeah, yeah. And I think I had enough of that in high school. Mm. Um, and I think I wanted to explore other things. And then during university, I did some other things, maybe focused on academic stuff a bit more. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't think I miss it so, so much. I, I think I don't miss the culture that surrounds it. Yes. But I certainly watch the rugby yeah. on TV. And I also, I also think that if I, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not too old to pick up rugby again, but I, you know, I maybe haven't got very long left to really go through it. But I, I also think a bit like riding the bike. I think if I, mm. I think if I jump back into it, I think I'd get the hang of it again very quickly. But uh, yeah, a year a year after Argentina, I went to Malawi, wow. which in some ways was probably a more memorable and meaningful trip because that was more, that was more like charity based, 
and uh, it was actually the philosophy department in my high school organised it. I think that actually Scotland, uh, you know, many countries in Africa have the Church of England as their fully, you know, their state church. But actually, Malawi, I mean, there's a film called The Last King of Scotland, which is set in Malawi. I think Malawi is the only African country that has the, the Scottish Presbyterian Church as its national church. Yeah, I, I, might, I might not be absolutely correct, maybe historically, maybe not anymore. Mm. But I think there's certainly more of a connection between Malawi and the Scottish church and Scottish philosophy and Scottish enlightenment. I think there's a bit of a long-standing connection there. And uh, so we went there uh, through my high school's philosophy department, and that was that was magnificent. That uh, you know, even several years ago, something we spoke about earlier. What brought me to China? I remember at that time considering going back to Malawi. Wow! And you know, uh, it would be very different kind of work doing the same thing. Mm. Um, I don't think I'd earn a lot of money, but I think it would be very rewarding possibly working for charities and orphanages there. Mm. Um, what an experience. Yeah, no, that was great. That was very, very memorable. Also, in, in Malawi, there's a mountain called uh, Mount Malangi. I think it's... I think it's... I think it's, 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 it's a massif. Uh, and a, a massif, I mean, I'm not a geography expert, but I think a massif is kind of like a standalone mountain. Like, mm. rather than being part of a mountain range... Uh, you know, it's it's a flat area with a huge mountain coming out of the coming out of the ground, sort of like almost apropos of nothing and suddenly. And I think I think Mount Malangi in Malawi is one of the biggest mountains in Africa, but also one of the biggest massive. So it's very striking. You know, it's very sudden. Uh, we we went on a three day trip, sort of exploring that, and you know, staying in cabins at the summit. It was very cold as well. Mm. You know, very very cold at the top of the mountain, and eating sort of simple porridge with the porters and so on. <laughs> That's very memorable. I maybe try and do that again once in my life. Uh, I did consider doing that, but I think I decided to bring it full circle with one of your first questions about yes. why China. Yeah. I think that you know China was appealing because it offered that kind of otherworldly experience, but also with viable career opportunities as well and self-growth opportunities as well. So lots of travel in my life. What an experience! Yeah. Vinyl music. That's music. One, that's one of the things that me and you connect with. Certainly. Uh, you went to come and send me play, and yes, I have. We're always talking about music yeah. and songs, and so what? What is some of your Vinyls. I mean, is it difficult to get now? And what are some of the latest music that you've been into? You've been listening to? Well, uh, vinyls. I certainly have my vinyl player in my home. A shelf of vinyls in my living room. You know, I listen to them relatively regularly. Um, I think I went through a bit of a vinyl phase. Maybe when I was about university, undergraduate degree, twenty-one to twenty-three. I bought a lot of vinyls. I think after a while it became a bit expensive for my university budget uh, and I might have sort of shifted into downloads and also CDs. Back home I've got a big CD collection, yes. you know, I was, born, you know, I was a kid in the <laughs> 90s and 2000s, I've got a big one of them. But I'm mad about music. My, my favourite band is called The National. Hmm. I listen to them, not every day, but almost every day and they're my go-to, go-to musicians. So uh, for number, part some of, of the Australian... Uh, listeners, uh, tell us a little bit about that band. The National? Yeah. Um, okay, I think The National have seven or eight albums. 
Um, yeah, right. Yes, their most recent one that was released was three years ago after I came to China. It was called I Am Easy to Find. Uh, it had quite a lot of female backing singers, which was quite a new thing for them. They were clearly explo- uh, exploring a little bit and experimenting, yes. uh, and it was really great. But maybe their first two albums were very, very underground and low-key, you know, small, small-town band. But I think that they, their third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh albums, which in order are called Alligator, Boxer, <laughs> High Violet, Trouble Will Find Me, Sleep Well Beast, and then the last one I am easy to find are some of the most perfect music I've ever heard, especially, especially maybe Alligator, Boxer, High Violet, and Sleep Well Beast. I, I listen to them repeatedly. I know them backwards. And, you know, the singer... I like the singer's voice. He's got a very baritone, which sort of suits my singing-along style, maybe. And they're very musically gifted. They've got these twin, identical twin brothers who play guitars. I think they're classically trained musicians as well. Yeah. And the drummer. The drummer's fantastic. Oh, You'd yes. Love him. yes. You'd love him. The thing, yes. that, the, the thing that makes the national stand out is the drums in many of their songs. I remember, doesn't you, sound tell, like, doesn't I remember sound you telling like, me that. Yeah, it doesn't sound like the drums in this band. Yeah, it doesn't sound like the drums in other, in other bands. You know, and I think it's one of those things where if you took the drums out of their songs, their songs would be sort of slow and sort of relatively melancholic sounding. Mm. But when you put the drums in, the drums are quite fast-paced and, uh, fast-paced and powerful. And it gives them a real sort of offbeat energy that makes me tap my feet. So I love them. And then uh, I think the other, the other music that I couldn't live without is Bob Dylan. Oh. Um, there might be a week in my life every couple of months where like, I only listen to Bob Dylan mm. a real Bob Dylan phase uh, big fan uh, but he's very very idiosyncratic and standalone you know no, nobody sounds like him do they oh absolutely um, yep yeah, and actually uh, talking about the National I'm quite excited because uh, about two weeks ago they released their first new music in three years oh, um, nice. and there was a song called uh, weird, weird goodbyes was the name of their song, um, and it was it was. I mean, they're getting older now. I mean, yeah. I think the singers turned fifty, so yeah. you know, we, you're not expecting sort of bombastic experimental music. Yeah. You know, it's relatively slow paced and romantic, but uh, I, I really enjoyed that, and I think that nothing is announced now. But I think they're expecting to release a new album sometime this year or early next year, and I will be. <laughs> very, very excited. Yeah. It's probably... I mean, there are a couple of other bands, like, for example, Arctic Monkeys, a very, very, very British band. You really like the New Chili Peppers? Yeah, the New yeah. Chili's album. I mean, certainly when they come out, I'll certainly listen to it all in order. You know, track one to the end track, you know, and I'll do it a couple of times to get really familiar with it. Uh, and I think Arctic Monkeys is another example of, like, especially they're so British, they're so culturally British, that sort of, I feel like I have to. But with The National, when The National release a new album, I won't listen to anything else for about a month. <laughs> right. I know that will happen. That's, um, so, that's, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love your dedication. Yeah. Uh, no, they're, they're, uh, Bob Dylan's a little bit different because Bob Dylan's 80 years old. And Bob Dylan also functions a little bit better as sort of background music. You might read and listen to Bob Dylan. Hmm. Um, but sort of like as a, as a band, The National are... You know, they're, 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 the, they're the only band that I'm sort of slightly wild about, in the same way some of these girls are sort of wild about Justin Bieber yes, and stuff, you know? Yes. Like, oh, New National! <laughs> oh, I'm going to go crazy about that, you yes. know? 
So that's that will be really exciting when that happens. Um, and the National also have a tendency to release new albums, sort of when something meaningful is happening in my life. Mm. I remember the, the the last one came out just after I moved to China, um, and that that sort of meaningful time, very memorable. And the one before that came out right when I was moving to Spain. Um, and I remember I actually drove to Spain from Edinburgh. I drove to Sevilla from Edinburgh, which is you know, a bloody long way. It took about, took about six days. I mean, I was resting in between and sightseeing, but it took about two days, six days. And it came out while I was driving. So I got yeah. the CD and listened to it on repeat the whole time, driving through France, driving through Spain. And that's what happens with music. You always, I remember yeah. I was in that spot when I listened to that yes. album. The, al- the album Sleep Well Beast by The National, to me, sounds like, sounds like driving from Granada in southern Spain to Seville in southern Spain. Right. About 200 miles. Yeah. Of the most beautiful motorway you could possibly imagine. I don't know what the motorways are like in Australia, but the motorways in the UK, totally forgettable strips of bland <laughs> land and dirty trees and skies and signs. Whereas Spain, hey, you're driving through olive fields, vineyards, you're driving through rolling green and orange mountains, you know, panoramas, ancient Spanish bridges. Mm. Oh, very memorable, very beautiful. So... Let's get close to open it up. Sure. Yes, we should. Um, I want to ask one thing. There's a there's a picture on your Instagram, and it's a, it's a actually like a, like a picture on your wall, and it said, "Trust the timing of your life." Oh. Explain that to me. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, listen, I, I before I was in Oxford, I, I went to UCL, and I stayed in an apartment in London bloody expensive so, um, <laughs> I, I had that I think that that picture was there in the house when I moved in and it was kind of like a simple framed slightly arty photo that said trust the timing of your life and I think that's a good message to have I think I do trust the timing of my life I mean you know yeah, I don't read too much into these sort of wall slogans that appear in my life you know I can sort of critique it as well but I think I think similar to, similarly to what I said earlier about having a plan but also sort of reacting to unexpected things and following your feet and responding to situations and opportunities that arise taking advantage of changes whether it's the pandemic whether it's making the most of the pandemic or it's a a change in your living situation, I've recently moved house, or whether it's um, you know, moving up in the world, getting a job you want or getting a relationship you want, trusting the timing of your life. I think it's, I think it's a slightly lower level than accepting fate. I don't necessarily believe in fate, but I think that tr- trusting the timing of your life, you know, something is happening, something is changing, something is developing. Let's follow it. Let's make the most of it. I think that we're a combination of what we plan and what we respond to. Totally agree. Yeah, because you have yourself and you have your plan and you have your vision and people doubt you, especially when you're, you know, working in large groups or you're working in a foreign country or working in an unfamiliar environment. 
and you, you, you're especially part of like a big group, it's easy to sort of not have who you truly are noticed. So I think that recently, especially I've had the opportunity much more to do this while I've been working by myself and for myself, mm. to tell myself to trust myself, you know, trust my ability, trust my limitations as well, work on the limitations and trust yourself to respond to situations and trust yourself to improve and trust yourself to meet your client expectations yes. and you know be ambitious be ambitious and go for it trust yourself trust mm. the time in your life and trust yourself as well well said things fall into place Johnny where can we find you on social media and how, how uh, you can predominantly find me on Xiaohongshu certainly if you're uh, interested in English academic writing in English, British cultural news, you can find me on Xiaohongshu. The, the handle name is Johnny Oxford and the Chinese search name, my Chinese name is Mo Zhongxian. And that's certainly where my uh, online business platform is based. Plans to expand into Billy Billy, but those are as, unyet, un, as yet unrealized. Uh, that's the primary place, certainly for sort of academic and professional reasons. I'm on Instagram too, but uh, uh, I'm not so much less active. It's 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 uh, less active, and also it's it's more just sort of it's, it's private okay. life. And it's also like if I take a nice picture, yeah. I take many nice pictures. Yeah, that's right. But you know, most of the time I forget to put them on Instagram, uh, and I think my name on there is J M S P Q R. Yes, S P Q R, representing my love of ancient Rome. And tell tell us about. What does the future hold for you? I think the future is a um, a blend of Chinese and UK-based educational business, uh, possibly possibly having pretty strong roots in the UK and China. Splitting my time, I think now staying in China, especially COVID. COVID's a blessing in disguise in some ways. I'll probably stay in China full time for a year or two, but possibly in the future, split my time much more, travel much more between the two. And the future, I mean, I can't, I can't help but say, you know, fairly, fairly tied in with my lovely lady friend too. So she's going to be a big part of it, I think. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I touch wood. And yeah, the future will be what we've spoken about today, but Seems very bigger, bigger and better and brighter. Yes. Yeah. And in some ways, unpredictable. Last question. Who is your greatest inspiration slash hero and why? That's such a good question. And I think if you asked me on different days, I'd give different answers. Yes. At this exact moment in time, I'd be very inclined to say Queen Elizabeth II, just because of her lifetime of work and service and you know correct moral character. Possibly if you weren't asking me at this specific moment, I'd give you a, uh, I'd give you a Roman emperor. I have this on my list here. Yeah. I remember you talking about it at uh, uh, time. Well, yeah, I mean, Ro Ro Roman history, especially, but ancient history in general, is is probably probably my biggest hobby. Along, yes. oh, well, I did my undergraduate degree was in ancient history. Who are your top two or three then? Top two or three. I mean, even the answers to that question would change. Did I mean, it, it has to be Augustus in terms of how he changed the world. Yes. I think that Diocletian, 
uh, you know, well over 200 years after Augustus, is a slightly lesser known but just as influential Roman emperor. Over the last year, I've been much more fascinated in the later Roman emperors. Uh, Constantine, certainly very influential. I'd say Augustus and uh, Diocletian, definitely. And probably just for the uniqueness, I'd go with Claudius, who was the fourth Roman emperor after Caligula. He was a very unusual man. He was disabled. Uh, you know, nobody quite knows exactly. Polio, I think he had speech impediments. Mm. And the interesting thing about him is his family thought nothing of him. He was the black sheep of the family. You know, they didn't bring him out in public. He, they were a bit embarrassed by him. But the emperor before, Caligula, uh, was mad as a hatter. And because he was mad as a hatter, he basically killed all of the rest of them. But he didn't kill Claudius because why would you kill Claudius? You know, okay. he's, he's armless, you know, he's no threat to me. And then when somebody finally got sick of Caligula and killed him, Claudius was the only one of the family left. So they made an emperor. And I think everybody had very low expectations of him. Uh, and I think that actually he knocked it out of the park. He hit it for six. Uh, broadly, anyway. I think he, he responded very well to a new situation. So I, I find... I find Claudius, the disabled emperor, quite inspiring. Motivation, yeah. Yeah, as we've been speaking about, how we respond to the situation to replace him. Yes. Um, yeah. So I think I think I definitely choose Claudius as well. I think that's a good way to finish it off, Johnny. There you go. Be like Thank Claudius. Thanks for your time, mate. Thanks for having me, Craig. And it's been a uh, all the best for the future. I really think that your business uh, is going to go places. And I think it's going to get bigger and bigger and better. Hopefully. And, hopefully. Uh, and ho hopefully I keep helping people. That's what it's all about. Yeah. You know? And I, I, grow, I grow depending on whether they grow. So I've got to help them grow. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And I wish you all the best, mate. Yeah. Thank Good you luck. so much, Craig. I wish you the best as well. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, I'm Tony Fair, founder of Victorian Grooming Company. Is your beard feeling dry or the skin underneath itchy? Maybe you'd rather soften and tame your beard instead. Our classic collection of beard oils, balms, and soaps will leave your beard looking, feeling, and smelling amazing. And if you prefer shaving, our pre-shave oils and shave soaps will give you a smooth and razor-burn-free shave. Handmade in Edmonton with natural ingredients, visit victoriangrooming.com.